Right. Um, hey, folks. So I'm going to do a live Q&A. And uh, yeah, I'm going through some questions which have been building up from Instagram and email over the last month or so. So first question is, uh, this is for me personally, what are my current dietary habits, setup, etc.? All right. So, right. Um, currently, I have about four meals a day. I say about because sometimes it can be three, sometimes it can be five. But generally, averages out to be about four meals a day. Each meal is composed of about three to four hundred grams of vegetables. Um, it's quite a lot, you know. The five a day in the UK is four hundred grams, so I'll up to five a day per meal. So that's a lot of veggies. Um, alongside that, I'll have a large amount of protein, usually from like an egg sauce in the bre for breakfast, or and a variety of sauces throughout the day. So chicken, beef lamb pork whatever and that's the basis of my meals so um that yeah that's 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 what i do four days a week they're all prepped so i don't really think about what i'm eating i just go to the fridge freezer get out a meal prepare it and off i go um so that causes a minimal fuss for me and a minimal thinking about what i should eat also alongside that i don't actually track calories anymore i have a loose plan but i'm not really into tracking macros and calories i think that's a larger conversation for another day because i'm still kind of working on that but essentially i've not tracked macros and calories um consistently for about 18 months now i'm still sort of developing my own framework for how to do that and still reach my goals some of it was covered in the podcast i had with menno where he talks about tightening up food rules to then lower body weight and, and tighten up body fat that's kind of the basis of how i work things briefly if you're interested <laughs> um so the way that i think about it is this like there are basically four main ways of having a dietary system okay the first way is first system is no system you are just exposed to the society you live in so in the uk and the us we live in a obesogenic environment so that is if we just eat what we're told to eat you know then um we're probably going to be overweight or obese because statistically speaking most people are so that is the first method of eating, just having no method. Obviously, not if you're listening to my channel, that's probably not what you want, right? So then you've got a three other other methods, broad categories. And every dietary method falls within the boundaries of these three categories. The first one is calorie control. Great way of doing things. It's good because you've got that hard ceiling. You know where you're at, all right? That hard number is immutable. It just doesn't lie. So that's the laws of physics. Now, partitioning affects that to a certain extent, but in general, calories matter. The problem with the calorie approach is it doesn't necessarily teach you about how to eat if your appetite is very large. So that can be a problem. People And the problem people run into with, with um, a macro and calorie tracking approaches, they just get hungry because they try and be too flexible. So they get hungry and then boom. Not saying everyone does, but the point is the hunger isn't inherent in the method. The dealing with the satiation, dealing with hunger is not inherent in the method. What's inherent in the method is tracking calories. So that's the first method. The second approach would be to have a series of food rules. And I guess meal plans would fall into this as well. So just like, this is what you can eat, what you can't eat. And depending on how strict or loose those rules are would depend on how your body weight goes. So for example, to get to 20% body fat, you might need to just cut out snacks every day. To get to 15, you might need to tighten up a bit more. To get to 10, you might need to tighten up a lot more. To get past 10, you might just be on chicken and vegetables all, all year round, all day around for a couple of months. So that's a good approach because the bottleneck for that is your appetite. You can eat 
to appetite. You just can't eat anything. So the calories approach is quite good if you don't struggle with appetite because you can have your treats, you can build them in. However, the people I work with, a lot of them, they just have very, very high appetites. The cravings are controllable, but the appetite isn't. There's a difference as well. There's a difference between wanting a chocolate bar to just wanting to literally eat the house. So I find for me personally, I don't, cravings I can control, but appetite is something which it, take, it takes a bigger effort for me to control. So I'm moving more to this approach now where I have a series of food rules and I tighten up what I eat, but I just still eat to appetite. So that's the second major way of, of fixing your, of having a dietary approach. The fourth or third or fourth, depending how you look at it, final way of having a dietary approach is using fasting. So your bottleneck there is your time that you eat. So either way, you either have no system, okay, or you have one of three systems, which is control calories, control what you eat, or control when you eat, okay? And you can use a combination of the, of the three. Right now, I tend to mostly do um, the food rules as in what you can eat. So I control what I can eat. That's how I control my body weight. All right, gonna move on for that because I think to answer that properly would need a, a podcast of it on its own. So if you wanna know more about that, just, yeah, let me know. Next question, how much of what we do is dependent on our mindset? Um, yeah, good question. Sounds like it should be a fairly easy answer, but like it's not probably not as simple as you think, and it's probably not as much as you think. Now, if I was to reframe this question, right, and ask you something to say, how much of you having a bath and brushing your teeth is dependent on your mindset? Right? <laughs> how much of getting your clothes on in the morning and going out to work is dependent on mindset? You know, what would you answer? What would you answer to that? You'd probably answer, well, nothing, right? I mean, brushing your teeth is just something you do. Yes, it is. Now, think back to when you were a kid, if you can remember that far back, when you first learned how to brush your teeth. Was it a matter of just what you do? No, it wasn't. Someone had to teach you what to do, okay? You had to have that. They had to give you that initial motivation. Perhaps you had to be explained why this happened. Then over the course of many, many months, weeks, every day, you have to be reminded, okay, it's time to brush your teeth, right? Eventually, now it becomes something you just do. It's like what people ask me about going to the gym. For me, it's just something I do. It's like walking, talking, breathing. And for most bodybuilders I know, that's what it is. It's not a mindset issue. It doesn't take a lot for me to get in the gym. In fact, it takes a lot for me to keep me out of the gym, you know? So what we do is depend on our mindset, not as much as you might think. Initially, I think motivation plays a big role. Motivation and education. So getting someone to actually show you what you should do, like brushing your teeth, for example. How should you do this new endeavor you're doing? Okay, that's motivation and education. After that, there's a certain degree of discipline to stick with it. And if you stick with it long enough, it should become a habit. That's what we want to do is ensure, well, stick with these things long enough, ensure have somebody on our back long enough, have like a coach or whatever long enough, so that this initial motivation change of um, activities and things that we do go through the motivation phase, go through the discipline phase and end up in the habit phase. Once you do that, once it's just habit, you'll be fine for life. So to answer the question, how much of what we do is dependent on our mindset, possibly the initial push. After that, what you should be working towards is finding something which is sustainable and you can actually do for a lifetime. Right. What differences do you see in people's attitudes and possibly commitments to start to sticking to a coach's advice? Wow. Okay. Um, mm talking about my actual clients. So I think there are, everyone who comes to me wants to succeed. Like I, I start off with that assumption and I always will. 
Um, I think there are degrees of compliance. <laughs> so, for example, an analogy here would be, let's say you go to the dentist and uh, he says, hey, are you brushing your teeth twice a day? And you're like, yeah, <laughs> even though you know that probably two or three times over the last month, you've forgotten to brush your teeth before bed and you've just gone to bed instead. Okay, but you're like, yep, yep, no problem. Every single time I do it, every single time. He's like, are you sure? Like, yeah, 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 I do it. So there are degrees of compliance. There are also the people who will brush their teeth two or three times a day, every single day, and do and floss and all that kind of stuff. Now, there are degrees of compliance. So I would say with this, you should do what you can comfortably do as long as you're getting results. Now, to... To get to the point where you've either reached a plateau and you need to reignite those results, you might need to tighten up a bit further. Or to get faster results, you might need to tighten up a bit further. Both have got benefits. So obviously to continue getting results, great. But to get faster results is also beneficial in the early stages because that can often lead and come with greater levels of motivation when you check your weight or when you check your strength or whatever you're doing. So um, yeah, I think different uh, commitments to sticking to the coach's advice, I think it's a case of degrees of compliance. I um, I always assume, and I've seen, uh, hey, hey, dude, you're right. <laughs> I've always assumed that I've seen that um, people who work with me, they want to succeed. And as long as you proceed with that attitude, then you're, you're good to go. Next question is, how many different coaches have you had in the past? I've had five. Um, four were uh, like physical strength coaches, uh, two powerlifting coaches, one fat loss coach, one contest prep coach, and now a business coach. How do you think your previous job has helped you within this role? Massively. Yeah, massively. I mean, for me, education is the key. Okay. Like I very much differentiate myself from these, these cheerleader PTs. I'm not about like high fives, back slaps, motivation, putting Monday morning motivation memes on talking about lions and sharks. What, what, what are we, whatever people are posting about these days, like, Sharks don't complain about it being a Monday. They just go out and bite stuff like, oh, that's so cringe. Um, I don't do that kind of crap. Like imagine like if you're a school teacher, you walked into school and your school teacher, instead of being like an authority figure of education, was like a hype man instead. <laughs> they just they were just bigging you up every time you went into class. They spent 20 minutes out of 60 minutes just like shouting slogans at you to motivate you, talking about tires and uh, talking about um, uh, tigers and lions and sharks and stuff like that. You'd think they were nuts. And it's also like majorly cringe as well. You've got this like 40 or something school teacher just shouting at you about how you should never give up. It's like it's absolute cringe. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, I think I, um, my previous education is, is a key thing, I think. Like if you're educating your clients and providing them with the know-how, then you're setting them up for life. If you're just a hype man and all you're there for is to do slow motion Instagram reels, um, talking about how hardcore you are, how, how hardcore you are, it's almost useless because it's just for that strictly first bit of motivation and fire, which which you're then assuming the client doesn't have. I mean, the clients come to you, they've paid you. You're there to do a job. You're there to educate them and show them a way to do things. You're not there to light the fire within them. That's not what they're paying you for. So I think I think my previous job, job has helped me massively. Um, and I think what you should be looking for in a coach is someone who is an authority figure someone who can provide you with the education to do things correctly. That's what you should be looking for, not this hype man. Mot motivation is a dime a dozen. You know, actual education is priceless. 
Um, what made you want to become a coach? I guess similar to the last answer. Um, the idea that time is the most pre precious commodity we have. Time is far more valuable than money. When you get to the point in your life where, you know, you're kind of midway through, you're like, oh, you know what? I'm starting to see the, the next half of my life and it being it. And after that, it's done. You start to realize that the time you wasted in your 20s and 30s was that's the most important thing you've got. It's not money, you know? Like if you can spend money, if you can spend money on saving time to get somebody to get you to A to B a lot quicker so you can reach your goal and you can be happy, spend that money, do that because time you can't make back, money you can. So yeah, what made me want to be a coach was to prevent people from wasting time. Like I've accomplished a hell of a lot. Like I've competed in four different sports at a relatively high level. Um, I've done a fantastic job with coaching over the last few years. Um, I've hit strength goals, which far surpass what people even think are just possible. Never mind what people think are good. Like the strength goals I achieved within the first five years are what people want to achieve in a lifetime. What I eventually went on to achieve, people can't even fathom what those are. And I've competed in sports and I've done very well. But I still felt that I wasted time. I still felt that had I had a coach earlier on, uh, for a longer period of time, I would have done a lot better. So I still felt I could have got more out. And I think if you're stuck in two minds about hiring someone because um, of the money, that it's just time is far more precious. So that's what made me want to become a coach was to so that people wouldn't waste time. And it's what annoys me when I see people go to crappy coaches because it's just going to be a waste of your time. Now, with so many people buying their followers to make them seem more popular than they really are, how would a newbie find the best way to perform certain exercises without falling for gimmicks or latest trends? I would say hire a coach, you know, hire someone who's competent who knows what they're doing. I would also say, and on that note, whether that coach is in person or online, doesn't really matter. I mean, I, the way that I do things online is, I feel far more beneficial because you actually have a more of a broader perspective to tear apart form. And I've never been able to um, I've never struggled with fixing someone's form from remotely. But I would say when looking for your coach, talk to previous clients. Don't take it from the coach's word. Don't just think, okay, the coach is putting up a good show on Instagram. He's doing lots of posts. He's got a new logo or whatever it is. Talk to the clients. Actually message the clients. Ask them what he's like. And ask message ex-clients as well if you want. But it's your money. You've got to be, you know, Careful about it. You've got to be um, got to be focused. It's your money and it's your time. If you waste three months on a coach who doesn't have a clue and you get caught up in the hype and the hype man and he's all high-fiving and he's all slow-motion reels on Instagram, then it could well be a waste of your time. It could just be a lot of hype and motivation. If you get somebody who knows what they're doing, that is far more worthwhile. So, yeah, make sure you hire a coach, but also hire a coach who's good. Going from – next question is going from cut to maintenance to bulk – is it just a case of cutting calories? I assume this person means, is it just a case of increasing calories? Um, no, there's more to it than that. If you're going from a cut to maintenance to a bulk, you've got to figure out where to add those calories in. Um, for my money, I think if you're dieting on a model of say, moderate to high protein, low carbs, low fat, let's say 50 grams of fat, carbs are down as low as 100 or whatever, I would rather look at adding calories back in via fat first um, and possibly via protein after, and then maybe after with carbs last. 
I don't think it's a case of just throwing in calories wherever because you'll feel better for it. It's like temporarily you might do, but in what is it you do? What are you actually doing for your long-term sustainability, your long-term habits, um, and your long-term appetite and adherence? So no, I think you've got to be careful as to where you add that in. Um, a lot of coaches come around to it uh, this way of thinking, which is good, like higher higher amounts of um, healthy fats. Um, lower amounts of protein, moderate amounts of carbs. A lot of coaches are still stuck in this mindset of super low fat, moderate or to low protein and super high carbs. And that's the only way of doing things because like carbs are life. But I don't think that's the case. And people's blood work who I work with will attest to that. Healthy amounts of protein, good amounts of healthy fats and a moderate amount of carbs are very, very effective for health and are still allowed to grow muscle. So no, I don't think it's just a case of adjusting your calories. I think there's far more to it than that. I think that's a very simplified viewpoint. Okay, next question. My vote for future content would be the Dorito effect. It would be an interesting listen, like you mentioned about the combination of sugars and fats of certain foods. Okay, so for those who don't know, the Dorito effect is, um, it was put forward as a way to explain why we overeat in modern society. And the idea was to say that we overeat because the foods that we do eat are lacking in nutrition, so like less vitamins and minerals. And that's why we eat more because our body inherently knows that we need more vitamins and minerals. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds like a very believable story, but then <laughs> it's very easy to disprove as well. Like it's exceptionally easy to disprove. You can right now, you guys who are listening, you can go onto Chronometer, an app called Chronometer. It's a bit like MyFitnessPal. It's a bit more high tech, but you can plug your numbers in there. You can set up a diet which will satisfy all of your vitamin and mineral requirements, all of your requirements, everything. And you can set up a diet which will still satisfy all those, but you can still be hungry. So that blows that theory out of the water right there and then, easy. No, it's not just about, we're not just overeating because of vitamins and minerals. Like we're not. There's more to it than that. It's a very simplified way of looking at things. We are overeating. Partly one of the reasons is, yes, this sugar-fat combinations, so high palatability foods. Nothing wrong with sugar and fat in themselves, but high palatability foods, foods that we want to eat more of, moreish foods, they tend to be a problem. One of the reasons that they tend to be a problem is they dull your palate. So your palate gets dull, and then you need higher and higher amounts of like fancy foods to actually feel something. Like, funnily enough, on a bit of a tangent, I want to keep this short, on a bit of a tangent, uh, I do a newsletter every Friday. You can sign up to it via my um, website or my Instagram link, uh, link tree. But um, I was talking this Friday about uh, vegetable intake, and uh, I put in there that is some a client of mine had been eating a high amount of vegetables, and I got three replies saying, "Well, you're gonna have to come up with recipes for how to eat veg, how to make them taste good." And that was a great talking point because that demonstrates to me um, people whose food palate is so dulled that they don't actually like the taste of vegetables. That's crazy to me. Like working with people who don't like any vegetables, like there's always gonna be someone who likes, who dislikes, say. I don't know, Brussels sprouts or broccoli. But to dislike all vegetables, that's not a problem with the vegetables. That's a problem with their palate. And so my reply next Friday when I, when I do my newsletter is actually going to be to look at the food palatability hypothesis and talk about how if your palate is so dull that you don't actually like the taste of vegetables, this wide variety of vegetables that we eat, then it's a, it, the solution is not to make the vegetables more fancy. The solution is to then dull, well, heighten and resensitize your palate um, and get away from these like high palatability foods for a while so you can actually resensitize yourself to non-processed foods 
So it's an interesting take on the question. Like, well, okay, Faz, explain to me how do I make the vegetables taste good? It's like, well, actually, what you should really do is better your food palate so everything tastes better. <laughs> That's the key to doing it. Like, you want to you want to be able to like the foods which support a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, you don't need to want to be. You want to avoid trying to fancy them. Or the example, the analogy I always give is um, like uh, sex. Like, if just to, <laughs> if just to get off on a random Tuesday afternoon you need to get out of the nipple clamps and go down to the sex dungeon, then vanilla sex is going to look very, very boring to you. So the solution is not to just become increasingly more, um, you know, whatever, crazy with your sexual appetites. The solution is to back off for a while. So you resensitize yourself to vanilla sex. Yeah. So yeah, it's the same analogy. Solution is not to fancy your vegetables, guys. The solution is to resensitize your palate. So you actually like stuff which you're supposed to like. Now, last two questions. Uh, last one, favorite foods now or of all time? My favorite thing, if anyone who really knows me is an all English breakfast, that's what I like. <laughs> Full English breakfast, that's the way forward for me. Can you turn fat into muscle? That's the final question. No, you cannot. I cannot turn fat into muscle any more than I can turn the table in front of me into a unicorn and fly off. So that is all your questions. Hope you enjoyed that. See you next time.